Welcome to another episode of the Brain Food Podcast. David and I, just before we hit record, we're having a chat about the very catchy title that we've currently got for this episode, Inventing the Keyboard and Mouse. Keep listening, guys, because this is going to be a thriller. No, seriously, it, <laughs> it is super interesting, but we do need to come up with a better title by the time this goes to air, because... Definitely. Yeah, Inventing the Keyboard That's and Mouse good. is um, is not super catchy. To be fair, this was the third iteration of topic that i was going for this week and the others just needed a lot more research so then i went to this and then this one needed a lot more research so i was kind of done coming up with good titles at that point <laughs> it's okay well we'll we'll have something by uh by next week or whenever this yeah. ends up going out i know we recorded a couple of days ago so we're getting some in the bank which is nice yeah. it's good to be ahead mm-hmm. i feel like i've been i don't know we're coming up on the end of september on our youtube channel it's the advertiser time like it's the end of the month you got to meet those deadlines it's uh it's yep. a pretty intense time so what have we got coming up then you know i assume those two that you gave up on are going to be uh subsequent episodes right they'll circle back but it's, it's just unfortunate because i wanted to kind of go in order on the things and this is going to be a little bit out of order but that's all right are we starting a series because we did macabre burke and Hare, the guys who were stealing bodies while killing people then they didn't mm-hmm. steal any bodies. They literally, <laughs> stealing was not part of their <laughs> crimes. Murder and selling bodies was part of their crimes. Then we talked about shrunken heads. What did we do last yeah. week? I already forgot. It was only on Fridays, four days ago. Yeah, that was the uh, the the lady oh, serial killer, the, the nurse, the nightmare oh, what nurse. What was her name? Happy Jane or Jolly Jane? Later rebranded. Yeah, Jolly <laughs> Jane and um, Jane Toppin. Toppin. To- yeah, that's was. right. That's right. So we're leaving Macabre behind. I'm quite happy to leave Macabre behind. The Shrunken Heads one was a bit much. Yeah, me too. Although the the, the Burke and Hare has been really popular. And uh, so is the the other ones shooting up as well. So apparently we oh, should good. come back to that at some More point. More talk about boiling people's flesh <laughs> heads. What's worse uh, is that when you have to spend sometimes days on end researching, you know, people eating other people and the various cases, mm-hmm. it's not a good time. Not good. No, I, I can imagine. And I don't know, like, when you put that picture, in a way, I'm kind of glad yeah. the podcast medium is is non-visual because there's that picture of Jeremy Bentham's all weird, shrunken, nasty, moldy head. Yeah. yeah, no, that was enough for me. And you must have had yeah. to look at many pictures of Jeremy Bentham's shrunken, moldy head. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, the uh, I think the worst was the um, when we did the other day a video on the cannibals. Oh, the, uh, it, it, can you actually get uh, you know in trouble? Is it illegal? to eat someone else and you know oh even dude and there was the one about the dude eating the penis i remember this yeah. one was in the news like, that was the worst I, I just was like yep that's enough yeah. i think i even put that in the script i was like yeah if you want to read the more <laughs> details yeah that's you go go right Feel ahead free to just, google that <laughs> i'm gonna stop talking about that and move on <laughs> yeah uh so we're leaving macabre behind and we're talking mm-hmm. uh, we're starting a tech series right and we're starting with the invention of the keyboard and the mouse yeah, or whatever they, we decide they, to call this. The, the QWERTY layout, like how did that come mm-hmm. to be? And the, the quite interesting story of the mouse and the presentation that it was sort of debuted at, which was pretty amazing. Um, I believe it, what was it? The, the, the mother, mother of, of all, all demos. Yeah, yeah, which I, it totally I, was. <laughs> I'm it's familiar amazing. with this before we did the podcast. Today. I'm not sure if we did a video about it, but this is, this is an insane, like, when was that? Yeah. The 60s or the 70s? Yeah. Yeah, it was exactly. And, you know, before you had these personal computers and everything and they had just the stuff they came up with. I mean, wouldn't even a lot of it wouldn't even be expanded upon for, I mean, till like the 1990s, basically. Dude, Um, some of the stuff in there, I feel like we only really got 
within the last decade like yeah relative like yeah. the collaborative working on documents at the same time without conflicts yeah. that's still a problem we have <laughs> yeah i mean there were, it was around but yeah as far as widespread use and all this but yeah we'll get to that we'll get to that so uh we starting we switched up the structure a few episodes ago are we doing quick fact then the main stuff yeah. and then follow up afterwards i'm looking at the quick fact now is this got anything to do with keyboards and mice no it doesn't it was um Originally, it was supposed to be a, a quick fact on Data's, you know, the Star Trek character Data, uh -huh. his his memory storage capacity, and then the um, sort of comparing it to the internet. But unfortunately, when I researched that one originally was like 2012, so much has changed since then. So I was like, ah, I'm going to scrap that because I couldn't, uh, I couldn't, I didn't have the time to go look and try to find out the how much data is downloaded on the internet every day today. So we, we substituted in for something completely different, which is completely fitting. Different is confitting because it's a Monty Python fact. Okay. Um, so, yeah. Wait, it has, how does that fit? The, the, now for something completely different. Oh, right. Yes. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. There we yeah, go. Yeah. And so this one is uh, on Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and it uh -huh. turns out that we have Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, Genesis, and Elton John largely to thank for for that great, great movie. Do you, you like this movie? Have you you've seen it? You know, I don't think I've ever seen it all the way through. <laughs> Um, You're killing I, me. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I've seen bits of it. I you just, didn't like it? I, I, I feel it's one of those movies. I mean, I, like, it's all over YouTube. So mm -hmm. I think I've sat down to watch it. It's been like, I've seen everything. Like, yeah. just in individual YouTube clips. Yeah. But I don't know. I'm going to draw a lot of flack. And I know I'm going to draw a lot of flack from our British listeners. But it's not as funny as everyone says it is. See... <laughs> I think I think it's quite hilarious, but yeah, a lot of uh, I know a lot of people who think it's stupid. Um, but yeah, I mean, and I'm I like British humor, and yeah. I think it's a bit, it's a bit. Do you like their skit, dumb. like their sketch shows and stuff, their little skits and stuff beyond the movie? Yeah, enough. But I'd much rather watch like some Mitchell and Webb or something. I just think it's hmm. I don't know if it's maybe it's because that's a bit Too more modern. It's a bit less dated yeah. but then everyone's like it's timeless and i'm like i disagree <laughs> right there we go yeah, yeah now but, everyone's turning off this podcast and like <laughs> not listening to this british idiot he doesn't even like <laughs> that thing that everyone likes about britain <laughs> yeah okay so why do we have to thank pink floyd or whoever it was and, and elton john, john, john and genesis yeah they, it turns out they funded 40 percent of the of the movie um, and and uh, we have from director Terry Gilliam, he he states why. I, I will read the quote in just a second. You know what else is funny? I don't really like any of those bands either. <laughs> <laughs> Genesis is all right. But Elton John, Pink Floyd, The Wall by Pink Floyd uh -huh. is the biggest turd of an album I've ever heard. I can't stand that nonsense. And it <laughs> oh, upsets me. me. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, and it's Led just Zeppelin. bad. Led Zeppelin, almost everything they did was amazing. I don't really know yeah. Led Zeppelin. I'm not really okay. sure I've listened to them. I'm not a big rock fan, like yeah. this harder side of rock. God, everyone's going to hate me now. I'm just going <laughs> to move on. Well, I do love Star Trek. Yay! <laughs> not the original series. That sucked. <laughs> They're going to be, Simon, I, I liked you when you didn't have opinions. Anyway, here we go. <laughs> Uh, he stated, there was no studio interference because there was no studio. None of them would give us any money. This was at a time when income tax was running as high as 90%. So we turned to rock stars for finance. They all had money. They knew our work. And, seemed, and we seemed like a good tax write-off. Except, of course, we weren't. It was like the producers. Never seen the producers either. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. God. Is the producers yes. a musical? 
Um, you know, actually, I have not seen the producers oh, either. God. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know it's considered something of a classic, but yeah. Uh, you, but know, the, you know, income tax at one point got as high as 98% in the that, UK. That is insane. It's insane, right? Everyone it's left. just like, <laughs> make any extra money and you just give it all, all to the government. That's, that's yeah, it. I, you don't get any of it. It was like a super tax. So it was only for the richest of the rich. And yeah. then it's, okay, so I was thinking about this and I'd be like, if I was in their position... I'd be like, I'm just going to stop working. But then the people in this position are like the Beatles or Genesis. And it's like, they're not yeah. going to stop working. And arguably, if I was in like a 98% tax bracket, I'd be like, uh, I'm not really going to stop working because I don't just yeah. do it for the money. And also yeah. I'll take my 2% over nothing. But I also screw that's, that. <laughs> that uh, yeah, that's, that's a bit a bit high. I think almost anyone would agree that's a little excessive. Yeah, just a touch. Yeah, so so yeah, it was an ultra low budget. The, the, these uh, rock stars basically contributed about eight hundred or eighty thousand pounds, which is about six hundred thousand pounds today in today's money, and that was about forty percent of the budget, as I mm -hmm. said there. And but this this extreme low budget was one of the reasons I think this movie was so great because, for instance, did you know that you know have you at least seen the part at the you know where they're going around with the little yeah coconuts? with the horses and the clapping yeah. with the coconuts or whatever? Yeah, they originally were actually supposed to have horses, but they couldn't afford them, and so they just came up with the idea of having the little you know assistant coming riding along or you know hopping along beside doing the little you know clippity clop sounds with the coconuts which is you know one of the best it's just that opening scene where he's just coming over the in the mist you know king arthur's coming and then yeah it's it all just, right it's it's, it's, it's all the right for the whole for the whole movie i think yeah it's great so yeah that um that it ended up the movie obviously was a huge hit um it made about three million pounds which about 19 million pounds today um God, uh, on its initial run and then and it's been pretty much a money maker ever since so all Wait, off a budget so those rock stars, they'll be like, we made a profit. Damn it. <laughs> I'll go into the now government. 90% of it goes back to the government. <laughs> yeah. But apparently this this worked out so well. The, uh, the Beatles, George Harrison, he actually funded three million pounds he put forward to make Monty Python's next film, The Life of Brian. And just to quote him on why, it's just because he said he wanted to see the movie. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. He did so well though, like, right? That second film was just as yeah. successful. Yeah. Yeah. Huge as well, 15 million pounds, which is about 69 million pounds today. But of course, as you said, it all went to the government. Wow. That's crazy, <laughs> though. That's, a, you know, George Harrison, yeah. just like, I want to see the movie. I'm super yeah. rich. I can do whatever I want. This is this is uh, the same as uh, Howard Hughes when he basically wanted Netflix in the whatever oh. 1960s or whatever whatever it was. Where he um, buys the TV station and he phones them up yeah. and he's like, I'm bored of this movie, change the movie. Yeah, and he just <laughs> wanted them to show the movies he wanted to watch when he wanted to watch them. It was great. This um, is amazing. This is like one of my favorite things because it just so highlights how awesome life is today. Because... Yeah. Literally, you had to be as rich as Howard Hughes in the 1960s to have anything even halfway close to Netflix and realistically much mm -hmm. worse. Um, yeah. And now it's, what, six bucks, seven bucks a month, and you can see any movie you want pretty much any time. And basically anywhere in the world. Yeah. Like, you know, even like flying over the ocean in an airliner, you can still stream your movies if you like. Yeah. Uh, it's just it's crazy. And then it's like, Oh, and we're also streaming low-budget TV or whatever, which looks better than any movie that was made before 1960. Yeah. Do you know what else you can stream while flying over the ocean? Any of uh, your files using Backblaze. <laughs> oh, you can. So if you're over the ocean and you've suddenly realized you need some of the data that you've lost in a crisis, 
Backblaze, today's sponsor. That was smooth, man. Did you? That well, well done. Uh, I've so my feeling with Backblaze. We're kind of going off script already. <laughs> I was taken aback by your incredibly smooth tra- uh, by the incredibly smooth transition. <laughs> so Backblaze, did you recommend this to me? Because I was using this for like a solid couple of years before. I did because we had so you had so many video files that we needed backed up. It was so, and I was like, dude, Backblaze, five bucks a month. That's it. They will back you know terabytes of data for five bucks a month. And I feel it's even cheaper than five bucks a month. Is it like fifty dollars a year? Yeah, that's true. You can get your <laughs> annual plan. <laughs> it's not even five dollars a month. And this was yeah. around the same time that. Do you remember when we we've talked about this previously on the podcast? And it's kind of gets a bit meta because it's like, hmm, yeah, uh, with the ad advertising and everything. But we were on that ten dollar a month plan for the podcast, and they were like, guys, now it's three hundred dollars a month because your downloads mm-hmm. got big. And this yeah. this was when we did our previous podcast, which was completely different. And then I was like, wait, but Backblaze let me back up everything for $5 a month. And I was like, uh, I, I don't know. This doesn't seem quite right. So I went to check it out. It's like, nope, totally unlimited back uh, backup. Nope. $50 I totally, a year. I have something like 14 terabytes that they back up presently uh, for $5 a month. Which is <laughs> right. just, I've, I, you do, I do feel like, it, like I've gotten in trouble from my internet provider over this, you know, yeah. over that. But, you know, when I'm like, you know, one or two terabytes or something, because, you know, I work online, do online video, I do a lot of streaming and all this. So, and so they, but like Backblaze is like, no, we will store all that data for, for $5. It's pretty nuts, right? Like, yeah, 12 terabytes is insane. I actually put a note here being like, should we talk about how much we use Backblaze? Because it feels a little bit abusive. <laughs> it does. <laughs> but it's a good edge case because, you know, most people aren't going to back up that much. But we, you know, we do online video. So we have a ton of stuff to back up. So so the most the most amazing thing for me, I, I, I do want to hit some of the actual talking points here. Otherwise, they have a go at us. <laughs> but um, is I before we had Backblaze, I was kind of like, oh, you know, backup's not really a, ha- really a hassle because I didn't do any backing up. I just was like, ah, touch the plastic wood that is my desk and hope that everything <laughs> will be okay. I've never really yeah. had any major issues, which is great. But yeah. so I never really did any backup. And then I realized that that was pretty insane because like losing the last three months of videos would just literally be hundreds of hours of work that I have to do yeah. again. But there's no hassle with Blackblaze. You install that app, you select which drives you want to back up. So for me, I was just like, chink, 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 all of the drives, mm-hmm. which are many. And yeah. then you just play, you press or whatever it's called, the backup now button, and you just yeah. let it run. And I let it run for days and days and days and days. And then it's done. And all of your yeah. terabytes of data are backed up. And now it's like, so I will record like in a day, I produce about 40 to 50 gigabytes of, of data. And then that just runs overnight. And then I, I've got very fast internet. And I come in in the morning and it's like, Meh. It's done. It's all on the cloud. Yeah. Yes, and it works. It works quite seamlessly. Like when you are using your computer, it does not slow down your internet. It just kind of pauses. You know, they're they're uploading and whatnot. Although, so. that's yeah. if you that's the default setting. Oh, okay. You can get it to slow your internet to a crawl, which is an amazing thing. Because at night, I'm like, use as many internet threads as you can and go yeah. nuts and make my internet so slow it barely works because I want all of that data pushed as fast as possible. But for regular people, you can just set it on like the small mode so it just trickles up there, which is probably best. But yeah. I love that ability because I like the control. I think it also ramps up a little bit, you know, when you're not using it, but I'm not sure. Yeah, it does have the, the you can set the maximums and minimums and all this huh. in the settings. Cool. But But yeah. Yeah, this is something, yeah, I have also used for, I don't know, like for probably like eight to 10 years, I feel like maybe, I can't even remember really. I've been using it for a long time. 
because it's just a steal of a deal. It's glorious. Uh, I they don't also, really know what else. Oh, go they on. Also do, uh, they also do, this is just uh, outside of their service, if you're just interested. They're kind of pushing the limits of data storage, you know, in ways that like Amazon and Google and stuff do as well. But the difference is Backblaze publishes these these sort of reports on data and how to make how to make a data server, you know, super cheap and like all this stuff on like, you know, some cool like uh, research stuff that they publish that a lot of companies don't. And it's just all open and they even publish open source their designs for their servers that they've come up with and what what hard drives to buy if you want to make your own. I was I was pretty super interested. I think they published a blog post or something about the data, the drive failure rates. Yeah. And like how often they have to replace them and all of this stuff. And how like when we talk about backup, it's not like they've got a copy as well. It's like they must have multiple copies of our yeah. stuff. And so yeah, and use various secure. algorithms. They also use various algorithms and different tricks to make it so they can, you know, not have to store every little bit, but can kind of like, you know, put it across different things to to conserve really? data and compression and all this. And so, yeah, they, they got a lot of cool papers like, say, you know, like blog posts, like you say, that they just put up and they're quite interesting to read, I think. Look, we love Backblaze. We've used we Backblaze for long before Backblaze were paying us to say that we love Backblaze. We reached, we reached out to them and we pestered them for a long time to be like, hey, oh, you should right, definitely yeah. sponsor us because we love your service. If you're not sure, go do a 15-day trial. Uh, it's also 50 bucks a year. Just go get it. I mean, it's 50 bucks. It's awesome. You won't regret it. It's just super easy. Don't let it be one of those things you're like, oh, I should back up my staff. Uh, don't yeah. be like Simon for years. <laughs> uh, backblaze.com forward slash brain food. That helps support the show. All of that good stuff. Again, backblaze.com forward slash brain food. Just go there, check it out. It's great. Main content. That's next. Are we moving on to the keyboard parts? We, we probably should. Yeah, we definitely should. And that... Speaking of computing, yeah. it's like a yeah. wide transition. Yeah. Yeah. So so we're looking at... We're, to start, we're going to start with the keyboard. Why, why is it this QWERTY... QWERTY keyboard layout, like how long has this been around? And it turns Slow out it is. Slow people down, right? That's the classic, like, I feel yeah, yeah. the internet, every fact site will be like, QWERTY, it was there to slow people down because they type too fast. That is a thing, that is a, a myth that has come up, but no, oh. it really, really wasn't. It was actually, actually to make sort of an efficient design. But um, to begin this, we have to kind of go actually back to the typewriter and um, the very earliest, the, the first commercially successful typewriter. This is kind of the interesting thing. It goes all the way back to the beginning, uh, this this layout, um, and then just everyone's been using it ever since. So um, it turns out there has been typewriter-like devices since about the 18th century and kind of different things that have popped up, but none of them none of them were ever commercially successful or anything. They were just kind of little inventions different people have. And I think the first one, which was the 18th century one, was I don't think the inventor guy actually made it. He just patented it like a, a design, but no. never actually... Um, constructed the thing itself but this it's brings like us the, the original steve jobs <laughs> yeah 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 so the uh we go to the 19th century the sort of a mid 19th century and when christopher latham shoals and with the help of uh, several other people uh, uh -huh. he he came up with with this idea for a typewriter and his first one was 1868 and this one this initial design was it you can literally just think of a, a piano keyboard you know where it's got the little black keys and the you know the main keys and this is this is exactly what he went with. And it was just everything was in alphabetical order across the keys. Uh, and it was just kind of this two level thing. And this is what he came out with. And it was specifically uh, kind of targeting um, telegraph operators and stuff used similar devices to this. Um, but in his case, this one, it just kind of like a classic typewriter. It had the little bars that kind of swing up when you press the key and then, you know, hit a little ink coated tape thing that then smacks against the paper. And then here you go. You got your your letter has typed. Um, but the problem was this, this was quite 
not a good design because it turns out some of the, the keys were really close to each other. And when you hit them really fast together, like the TH or whatever, uh, it would, um, the way he had it laid out in the two levels, they would kind of jam sometimes if you did it with any speed at all. Because uh, often TH, like the, there, then. Yeah, it often yeah, exactly. Okay, cool. Yeah, and the way it was on the two two rows of the keyboard, they've just, you know, this this was one of the problems with this. There was other problems as well. Uh, but this was kind of the main mechanical problem, which first seems to have spurred him to change change his design. And I know at, at this point, there are people out there right now listening to me like, no, no, that's a myth. And uh, and it's like, no, it is not a myth. It's uh, So in 2011, there was a paper that came out it's called uh-huh. On the Prehistory of QWERTY. And it was by Kochi Yusoka and Matoko... Yosoka? I don't know. Sure, why not? But it's definitely the same name, <laughs> uh, isn't it? <laughs> either way, of Kyoto University, and uh-huh. they they basically purported that this was a complete myth, and uh, instead they suggested that it was actually he was taking input from um, from the the telegraph operators to to kind of change his design, and that's how he came up with the that's was what spurred the change. Um, and this is, I mean, there's elements of truth to this, but it's not actually the the whole part of the that being a myth. Does not seem to be the case uh, in that paper that they published, which has been widely cited around the internet, um, even by the Smithsonian Magazine, which usually they do a better job of research than that. So come that, on, Smithsonian. You know, yeah, Every, everybody, on. everybody gets stuff wrong sometimes, though. So yeah, so this has been parroted around, and now you'll often read that no, that's a myth. And it turns out, so in the paper they say that that idea of the jamming came up in the 1980s, and it turns out, no, that idea actually came up in 1923 in the history of the typewriter by the Herkimer Historical Society put this put this book together, and they very clearly had access to Scholl's notes and his various correspondence and stuff, and this is how they came up with their, you know, a lot of their primary research for what they said, and uh-huh. they are the ones who said specifically that, no, it was initially, it was the jamming problem that, that sort of spurred him, and then, yes, they also mention that he did take input then when he was looking at changes from the telegraph operators on how he might change the design to then work. So, so there, I mean, there's elements of truth to what's said in the 2011 paper, but the way they present it, um, they didn't know any of this, and they uh, they kind of just presented the jamming was a myth, and then they give you know speculation on why they think it was actually this other thing. So they kind of got the second part right um, Wait, inadvertently. Hold up, I'm a little confused. There yeah. was, <laughs> it was because of jamming. People said it wasn't because of jamming. Turns out yeah. it actually is because of jamming. Yes, and then, but okay. also the the point of this paper, this 2011 paper on the prehistory of QWERTY, uh, was that they that they were speculating um, that that he was actually the various design tweaks he did was just because of telegraph operators' feedback, and so that's what he was doing. And it turns out they got that part right. They just didn't know. Uh, I, they clearly had never read, you know, like this 1923 book or the various notes and letters that um, the Scholes, actually his notes and letters are still around. You can go down to the state archives of Madison, Wisconsin and go read them, which I have not done yet. So I'm more going off this 1923 book, which did have access to them. So, you know, it might be kind of interesting to actually go back and read through those and see if you can dig up some extra stuff on that at some point. But so- for now... Normally when I hear people like citing papers, that means it's been published in some sort of academic journal. Yeah? Mm-hmm. 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 This seems yep. a bit sloppy. Like, because... Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a fine paper. It's well-written and all that. And, you know, the research, you know, could have been deeper, I suppose. But Well, your research for this podcast seems to have turned up errors in their academic paper. And that makes me think you could have done... You know, come on. I don't know. They're, am, I not, am I judging too harshly here? I mean, I mean if, it's an, if it's an article in a magazine, sure, we'll allow mistakes. But if you've been published... The fact that they didn't have, you know, like 
some of these notes, like they clearly didn't read this, where in like this 19, the history of the typewriter book, they, they say that Scholes actually said, yes, he took, he took, um, input from, from these people. And so they didn't have that. So they were just kind of looking at kind of the, the changes that were made. And so they, it was kind of an interesting, you know, little hypothesis they came up with based on the changes that they saw and said, no, I bet you there was telegraph operators because of the way, you know, they worked and the way they did stuff. And so, you know, there was, there was some cleverness about it, but yeah, it's just, Easily. you know, but these are, these are possibly just two students, you know, might even be undergrad or something, writing a paper for something. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but someone reviewed that paper and put it in a, yeah. in a journal. Yeah. A lot anyway. of stuff gets published, but anyways. It's true. Every, I, I mean, it's just because then the problem is yeah. then it leads to people like Smithsonian publishing, Smithsonian yeah. Magazine publishing it. And then people see Smithsonian yeah. Magazine citing an academic paper and you're like locked in as fact. No need to question that further. No so, need to even go back and read the paper. Um, no, so, you just trust yeah. that. And then it leads to these like myths that you get on lots yeah, of but, but then websites. it also leads to us having a job. True. Yes, that's 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 a good one yeah. <laughs> take it carry on <laughs> yeah. all right so yeah there's you know that seems to be the case that there was actually a, initially a jamming problem that that was one of the primary causes of the change but mm-hmm. whatever the case uh so he makes this design sell some doesn't sell particularly well or anything um limited sales but then he teams up with uh remington who uh in you know the um civil war were you know, making weapons and stuff. And now they were kind of moving on to other things now that the war was over. And so they decided to team up and produce the Remington number no. one typewriter, which was based on uh, a design he came up with in 1872, which was uh, a little bit more similar to what we would think of as the keyboard layout and the, and the typical typewriter. Um, this one still did not sell particularly well, and it wasn't quite yet in the QWERTY it was very close to the QWERTY we have now. Um, if anyone wants to just Google the image of it, you can see kind of the layout. Um, very similar, but not quite. But then four years later, or I should say actually in um, 1878, I think it was. I didn't write it down for some reason, but I think it was 1878. Uh, they He did made the, um, some slight modifications again. And this was the Remington number two. And this one, this one had the QWERTY layout, uh, the main keyboard part anyway. Uh-huh. Obviously, some of the symbols and stuff were a little different. But, um, no hashtags. But the main, I, mean, I, I don't know. I, I, well, let me look. What did they call uh, it back in the day? The Octothorpe? I think it yeah, was. Yeah, the Octothorpe. No, I'm not seeing any hashtags, just numbers. <laughs> and let me see if I can find a bigger view of this thing. It'd be useless for Twitter. Yeah. Have you, see, have you seen these hipster devices, uh, which is like a, an old keyboard that someone's converted into mm-hmm. a, a device that you can slot an iPad into the top of? And then use that as a keyboard for your iPad. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> Maximum hipster. Yeah, no, this uh, just this appears to have the numbers, the letters, and then it actually one thing it does have here is the shift key. And that's noticeable. Like, have you ever wondered why is the shift key called a shift key? You know, why does that make something capital? I don't know. Let me guess. Shift it. But then it's like you'd shift it to the next thing like to uh-huh. the next row of characters but that doesn't really answer the question why no you're, you're kind of on the right track so you think about this when you press the a that little bar you know flips up and you know smacks the the little ink tape thing and uh, and puts the a right and so but if you want that a to be a capital a now what if you just put the capital a on the same bar and then you just hit the shift key which moves the whole thing up or down depending on how you want to design it uh, and then now all of a sudden when it flips up now it's going with that other you know the capital or the lowercase depending on whether the shift key is pressed so it literally just shifts the entire bar up or down um, yeah. depending on how you want to do it and this is this is what it did uh, to just shift and then of course this got carried over to computers even though nothing is actually being shifted but we still call it the shift to just you know make it capital letters which is 
There you go. And they still write shift on keyboards. Yeah. <laughs> They're like yeah. handy. I'm looking yeah. at mine right now. It's like shift. Yup. Also, yep. we should do a follow-up. What the hell does alt green mean? <laughs> like alt green? Like, you know you've got alt on the left. I've uh-huh. wondered this for a long time. It's one of those things I should probably Google but never have. Look at your uh-huh. keyboard. Alt on the left, right? And then on the right you've got something that says alt gr. I don't have that. You don't have that? Shit. Is this a British no. thing? Or like yeah, maybe a it is. European thing? I'm gonna follow up on that because I think it stands yeah. for alt green. And I have no okay. idea what that means. Because I mean alt means alternate, right? So yeah. and you know, computers is my thing, so I've n- I've never seen that before. So that it's got to be like a not US thing at least at the minimum. Maybe it doesn't mean alt green. I'm googling right. Yeah, yeah. There's an alt gr key. Interesting. I'm just doing a Wikipedia on this one. So it's so use similar to shift key. Some computer keyboards. I'm going to follow up on this. I need more information. Yeah. Stay okay. tuned to next week's episode for a fun follow up about the alt green key, which you probably didn't care about because your keyboard probably doesn't have it. I'm quite interested now. I've never seen this. Well, there you go. No, I'm looking at a US international keyboard layout, which and is the one... Well, there's the... I always think the US one is where there's the at symbol above the two, which is not European. And I'm looking at it right now, and there's an Alt-GR on the bottom right-hand side. I've never seen this. Yep. Maybe I have in like an old keyboard design, and I just don't remember. Alt-Graph or Alt-Right. Alt-Right? It's just yep. for the alt right or, or alt graph. <laughs> uh, it's a modifier key found on some computer keyboards and is primarily used to type characters that are unusual for the locale of the keyboard layout, hmm. such as currency symbols and letters. I could see this being a more handy thing in Europe, where you're constantly maybe referencing other, uh, you know, currencies and uh, things. That's true. I am looking huh. at it now, and it does gives you access to like you know um, huh. the symbols above like the. I don't know, in track there, the chart cards, like a symbol above a letter, or like the umlaut, these things. Huh. Yeah. Uh, there you go. Fun times. Yeah. Um, so I'm guessing he doesn't have an alt green key on his Remington no. 2 or whatever no, I don't. he was I don't on by now. see any <laughs> such thing. Uh, there doesn't really, yeah. So yeah, just the basic symbols too. But uh, going, this Remington number 2 was the model that sort of set the standard. Obviously, it sold quite well. Within about a decade, it had sold over 100,000. Uh, units and not only that what what helped this as well was that they also offered certification in their keyboard which was quite popular with businesses and stuff and so if you wanted to be if you were a typist you could get certification you know training from them um, for quite they they obviously set the fee really low because they wanted everyone to use it and so you could get certification and then you could go to a business and be like hey i'm certified typist in this this remington number two and so they could you know help you get a job and so this became extremely popular. And then shortly thereafter, what was it in 1893? Yeah, uh, 1893, the Remington and four other, the, basically the four other top typewriter makers in the country all merged into one giant typewriter, you know, making company. And they set, they bent, they just set the standard the industry standard became the QWERTY um, from then on. And it, it was already, I mean, basically the standard because, because of how many Remington number twos there were out there and everyone using it. That sounds like um, it would be fully illegal today. The four biggest companies yeah. in the world just decided to get together and corner yeah. the market. Yeah, but it works out for the keyboard. And then, then there was a standard, which was quite, quite handy. And I should go back, not only the, um, so his, some of his uh, motivation for the way he laid out the keyboard, it was to sort of simultaneously, he was taking input from like telegraph operators and stuff like that on kind of where they might like things laid out. And then also he did some research on looking at sort of what might be a good, 
you know, combination of letters, like where to put them to make it, you know, a little bit faster to type well, also considering to keep the type bars, you know, so they wouldn't be overlapping so much. So like, you know, keep them, you know, mechanically far away from each other uh, if for, for letters that were frequently used together. So it kind of helped with the jamming issue as long with some other tweaks in the design. Um, and so this, this was all kind of his motivation there. Uh, and that, that is, he, you know, there's not really a lot of notes on exactly, you know, more detail than that, how he specifically decided where each letter would go. But he continued, even after the Remington number two, he continued to tweak the design to try to get it better and, you know, faster to type words and stuff. But that, mm -hmm. you know, everything past the Remington number two, his designs, they just stopped, you know, people just stuck with that one because it was pretty good. And uh, it's basically been uh, pretty good ever since. And this brings us to one of the primary alternatives, of course, is the Dvorak keyboard, which I know yes. you've tried. You've tried. Yeah, it was horrible. It was a horrible yeah. experience. And I was how long like, did you? How long did you give it? Like a day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just like this. Uh, I don't know. I I don't know why I ended up trying this. Mm -hmm. I don't even remember my reasoning. But I was kind of like, oh, I do spend a lot of time typing. I think <laughs> maybe this was before I was just insanely busy. Because the idea of me doing this now <laughs> is just absurd. I just yeah. be like. No, are you crazy? I don't have time for that. No. <laughs> to get like a 2% incremental gain. And then I think you told me it doesn't actually make a difference. And I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it doesn't. It turns out, I mean, it, it makes a minor difference, but it's so minor that you would never really notice. Like definitely the speed of your thought for most people is probably going to be more the, the thing unless you're just, you know, a typist who's really going for every extra word per minute but it turns out as we'll get into momentarily it doesn't really make that much of a difference to as far as speed if you're just considering speed someone i know is a stenographer oh yeah well, really their speed is insane it's yeah. like yeah people will be saying stuff and it's it's yeah. like they know what they're saying yeah well say. they have those special keyboards as well oh yeah the shortcuts and stuff which yeah yeah, yeah that's pretty the, cool that's the way to go if you want real speed um <laughs> Until but, they get the machine that can read my mind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So this, this, uh, it was Professor August Dvorak from Washington State University in the 1930s. Uh, he was, he basically wanted to make something that was better than the, the QWERTY, just a little, you know, to be more efficient. And he had some great ideas for how to make this happen. And if you look at his ideas, you can definitely see why it seems like it should be a lot faster. Uh, so he's basically looking, he wants to do, uh, you know, the five most commonly used consonants. He wants it on the home row and all the vowels because these are these are going to be so what's two things are going to happen there. One, you're you don't really have to shift from the from the home row very much for a lot of the a lot of the things you're typing. And two, you're going to be alternating. So if you have the vowels on the left side and these these consonants on the right, you're going to be alternating quite a bit just just by the nature of the way words are. And so you can very quickly, you know, go back and forth. And, you know, this seems like it would be a great idea. Uh, mm -hmm. seems like it would work. Uh, and yeah. this was this was the main his main point was to try to minimize the movement that your fingers are doing. So kind of the, the distance traveled. So they're just you're just kind of pressing down a lot more than you are, you know, going up and down with the fingers. And uh, yeah, this this it turns out the uh, around 400 of the most commonly used English words can then be typed just using this home row compared to the QWERTY keyboards uh, of this sort of list of most commonly used words. Only about 100 in English can be typed only using the home row. And so it seems like in theory, this should be quite a bit faster. So yeah, the initial test with Dvorak was was quite promising. The, in conjunction with the Navy in 1944, he did it. And what they found was, I think they used 14 typists on the, in the test sample. Uh, and these initial tests, they found a 74% increase in speed uh, words per minute and 68% fewer uh, uh, typos, basically. Mm. And so this, this is, seems quite promising. 
And then, uh, and then a little later, some other studies came out um, uh, that basically said the opposite and said, no, this, this doesn't actually increase anything. Um, and, um, and so, yeah, this, and a lot of this has become a little bit of a, like a religious debate between the, the pro Dvorak <laughs> people and the QWERTY people. Uh, yeah. and so it's kind of, they all kind of discount each other's studies and like, no, that was, you know, faked or whatever. And it turns out this is just a hard thing to measure too, even if you're really trying to come up with general, genuine results, because if you think about it, so you take a, you know, a sample of, you know, QWERTY keyboardists, people are quite proficient in it. But what was their training, you know, initially, and are they doing it the most efficiently that you can do it? And if they aren't, which a lot of people aren't, like I, for instance, type with three fingers on each each hand, oh. even though this is my, I never use the pinky. Um, I guess I use my thumbs, so that counts for the space bar. But um, yeah, so this, Wait, you know, you're yeah. supposed to use the thumbs for something else? Well, I mean, you can use thumbs for, well, I was just saying the thumbs is, you know, use it for, uh, you know, the out key. And, oh, okay. Yeah, gotcha. I was like... <laughs> I thought you were saying you were using the thumbs wrong by just using the space no. bar. I'm like, wait, so I'm like perched above the keyboard. <laughs> no, but you're supposed to have like formal training, right? And this is something I, you know, I just learned to type doing video games, you know, like the Quest for Glory, which we covered before and mm -hmm. stuff like that. So, you know, I'm quite fast typer, but you know, this, this is the way a lot of people learn and they learn in correct techniques. And so then when those people, it turns out, go and then use the Dvorak. So they actually, for, for the first time in their lives, actually you know, in a regimented way, type the way they're supposed to type, you know, sort of train, then you do see a massive increase in speed because now you're doing it correctly. But it turns out then when you go back to those people and get them to use the QWERTY and actually do proper training to retrain themselves, they also see a huge increase in speed. And it turns out the Dvorak, um, when you kind of aggregate all the different studies and things that have been done, which are surprisingly many, uh, it seems like the Dvorak gives you about a 2% to 10% increase in words per minute. And there's also a lot of claim that it will reduce your errors, but that seems to be more um, the mixed, mixed, mixed reviews on that one. Uh, as far as that, it seems like the, what more happens, a lot of people note, is that you, you stop doing like a random wrong letter error, you know, and what ends up happening is you often, you know, just kind of do inverted letters so, or, you know, they kind of go in the wrong order. So when you meant it, you know, like if you're saying the, you might do H-T-E instead, um, that sort okay. of typo pops up more often. I don't even know if I have these anymore because it just autocorrects that sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah, that's true. That's oh, true. My most frust frustrating one is correcting your name to Maven. Like, <laughs> hey, Maven. No, no, that's <laughs> no. Maven, not Maven. Not gonna, not <laughs> so work. if you ever read Maven, that's what's going on. Yeah. So yeah, this is, this is kind of the thing. So the, a lot of the people who are looking at and say, no, we got... I got a way bigger improvement. It's often just the case that they, uh, it seems to be that they, you know, weren't doing the QWERTY right. And if they just took proper time to train in the QWERTY, they would also see a huge increase. And so the problem is there's a lot of subjectivity in this, you know, how, how skilled was the people that you're doing these tests on in the first place with the QWERTY and stuff. So there's actually been some studies that tried to get around this problem by taking the humans out of the thing. Ah, uh, this and is where I was going to say, surely we can get computers to do this, right? Or yeah. like artificial intelligence. I saw a guy program a thing that, you know that when you load Google Chrome and it, the website doesn't load and you have the jumping dinosaur? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Okay, cool. Like, I saw a guy program fairly quickly, like, a machine that learned how to play this game. And I was like, that's amazing. <laughs> and all I'm thinking is, like, surely we can, like, figure this out. Yeah, this is exactly what, and uh, uh, my favorite of these was, uh, there's a study in uh, January of 2006 by one Catherine Hempstock, which uh, of University of Wakato, 
in, uh, I think it's New Zealand. Anyway, she did a great study. It was called The Great Keyboard Debate, QWERTY versus, versus Dvorak. And she basically decided, all right, so we know the time it takes for your finger to move up or down is going to be, you know, we can actually look at this and see, you know, typists, proficient typists, how much, how much time. It's not going to vary that much. We can get the average time to, you know, to go up into the side or up and, you know, this, this sort of thing. And so she kind of took these averages, how much, how much time does it take to press a key for the average keyboardist, you know, very proficient keyboardist. She took all these times. The artificial, artificial intelligence, apparently. Yeah, well, she she gets to that. Uh, she, I mean, not artificial intelligence, but you can just add. So then she took 21 uh, quite lengthy books, such as Moby Dick and, you know, this this sort of things. And then just, you know, how, Never how long? Read it. Never read <laughs> Moby Dick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So then... In the theme of today's episode, things that yeah. Simon really should have read and seen, but never has. Yeah. Yeah, so then, then just how, you know, it's easy then to add up how much time would it take for the Dvorak keyboard to do this? And how much time would it take for the typical QWERTY typist to do to do that, given the average, okay. these averages times um, to type these works? And so in a nutshell, um, she has, a, you know, rather lengthy conclusion with a lot of data and stuff, hard points. But basically, it was just that, no, there really wasn't that big of a difference. And it turns out some some seem to there for some cases, you'll actually favor the QWERTY and other the Dvorak. And then she she sort of. Um, but yeah, either way, it doesn't really make any difference. And she sums up the whole things by stating. The Dvorak layout is the most efficient because it requires the least amount of effort to type some given text, even though it may take approximately the same amount of time as the QWERTY layout. Yeah. So Which is that, fine, but who really gets tired typing? Yeah. I, yeah. This <laughs> it's is, like, oh my God, I burned an extra three calories. Yeah. After I have, a year. <laughs> I have like, when you're really trying to type fast, you know, and for like, you know, a long time, like just as fast as you can think, then yeah, I've had like your wrist start to get a little, but that is so rare. And I, and I'm at my keyboard all the time typing things. So even for me, that's, that's a pretty rare occurrence, yeah. but that, that is uh, as, as the intended uh, sort of goal of his was to minimize the movements, you know, the travel distance of the fingers. And he definitely achieved that, but it turns out it just doesn't translate to that much faster typing, uh, even in, in this, this, this study here so you're you're really not going to get much of much bang for your buck which of course uh, when you have such an established thing like this you're going to need something that's just revolutionary like so much better for everyone to switch otherwise companies going to be like no we're not going to spend the money to retrain and all that so uh yeah so then we're we're kind of stuck with the the qwerty but the, but but there is other reasons not just speed beyond that to go for the dvorak just like we just said the the fatigue factor some people do claim for their use cases it does help their wrists and their forearms and stuff not get so tired as they're typing. But then, of course, yeah, there's the, the you know, one to six months or whatever to, to get super uh, proficient in the Dvorak, depending on how much time, hours per day you want to devote to the Switch. I did read, uh, there was one guy who did both. He did at work, he did the QWERTY, and then at home, he Whoa. did the Dvorak. And then he said, he said it actually was not hard once he became proficient uh, in the Dvorak as well to just switch. And it didn't, his brain had no problem switching. It was... The, the biggest drawback to this, though, is that the shortcut keys, everyone says the shortcut keys, if you, especially if you're like a computer programmer or this, uh, like programming uh -huh. in C, for instance, a lot of where the symbols are is also a huge issue um, on the Dvorak keyboard when you make that switch. It's just really not well placed. And then the shortcut keys, because they're all ge geared for the QWERTY to be really, you know, easy, easy reach for the QWERTY, but not necessarily for the Dvorak. So this is another key complaint that a lot of Dvorak advocates, you know, they, they note is kind of the annoying thing, but there are scripts and stuff you can, you can install that will 
sort of restore the old shortcut, even though you're using the Dvorak. Yeah, I'd kind of whatever the X is or the C or the V for yeah. cut, copy and paste. I'd want, yeah. you know, I don't care if it's control X or control P. Yeah. That's cool. I just would like it where it was before because it's like in a nice row. You can just be like control C, control V. Easy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's kind of kind of what they do. You can install these or you can just go with the really, you know, awkwardly placed things. Um, but yeah, so at the end of the day, you know, you, if it's only going to be a marginal increase, you're not going to see the widespread which so th- this is the thing like when 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 i tried to switch it or just experimented for a day and then you were like no nah, it doesn't really make a difference and it was it's so frustrating you know I, I think everyone has had this experience like a similar experience you know when you go to the airport or wherever and it's like you use one of those touchscreen computers to like punch in your name or like your boarding mm-hmm. code or whatever mm-hmm. and then for some unfathomable reason <laughs> They've done it A, B, C, D, E, F, G, like in a big block on the screen. It's like, who designs this? <laughs> I I want to end you. Like, yeah. because it's like, no one is wanting to do an alphabetical thing. The only yeah. people that would want this are old people who've never used a computer. But then they've used typewriters, so no one wants this. And yeah. it's it's this level of frustration where you're like, oh God, I know the alphabet, but where's W again? It's somewhere yeah. near the end. Yeah. yeah. And this, yeah, this, there is some, I think, some there's some argument to be made for switching to like, so you don't have a phone to using not a QWERTY layout though. So you're using just your thumbs. And so, I mean, certainly there's gotta be more efficient keyboard well, yeah, layout. That was the nineties. Yeah. Wasn't it? Well, yeah, but like no one's really, everyone still uses the QWERTY on your phones, you know, like no. you just, well, yeah. think about it. Texting on like a phone from the nineties, uh-huh. it was A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And each yeah. key had like three letters. It well, wasn't QWERTY. I'm, Oh, yeah, but I'm saying like nowadays it's all QWERTY, but there's probably a better layout for just if you're just using your thumbs, there's probably got to be some sort of a better layout out there. And I know people have been trying to develop such, but that might be something where they, someone could come up with something that's just so different and so much better uh, that, that, that it actually sticks at some point. But we'll, we'll see. But there's also, you know, like the alphabet. So this got me thinking about the alphabet. The letter Q, the letter X and the letter C are completely pointless and we could just get rid of them. Uh, they, 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 there's no use of them. What about when I want to talk about xylophones? Z or Z? Oh yeah. <laughs> cool. I was really worried because I've got a C. lot of xylophone talk planned for later in this <laughs> yeah. episode. Yeah. So, and um, C, C can be substituted with, uh, you know, the K and the S for any uses there. And yeah. And pretty much Q is what, like QU always, but you could just, you know, W, KW. You know, this this all works. We really don't need these these letters if we really wanted to be ultra efficient. But of course, no one's ever gonna ever gonna get rid of those because they've been around. And you know, same as the yeah, QWERTY I, keyboard. I mean, I'm thinking about it because in Czech, which is a language I half speak as well, like W is really not used. It exists in the language, but it's not really ever coming up. Mm-hmm. It's weird. That is weird. Okay, we should let's eliminate some Q. It's pointless in English. Yeah. That's for sure. And X and C. I, could, I was trying to think if there was others, but I couldn't. Why do we have W? Can't we just use two Vs? Because it is like W. Double well, v. but then you, you still got to have a way to make the sound, right? The wuh. Yeah. Wha. So wha, how would you do that otherwise? I mean, I guess you, you kind of do it with a Y and an A a little bit. Maybe if you so want to So how would you do questions? Them? Like with this K. K. And then yeah. a W. Just the K, all the all the Q, all the Q U, all the Q U's could be just K W. Yeah, for the years after these are eliminated, everyone's going to be writing like an idiot. Yeah, 
I got a question, KWE. <laughs> that would look pretty funny. <laughs> like, uh, do, you, do you have prime minister's, uh, or I don't know, obviously you don't have prime minister's question time, but do you have this thing where it's like, it's like a program, like, or not a program, like a parliamentary thing where you, like, people will ask questions of the prime minister <laughs> and be like, <laughs> prime minister's question time with <laughs> KW. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. That was, yeah. <laughs> question. Oh, uh, where were we? We got off topic. So yeah, we will sum up this whole section uh, by a oh, quote from Dr. Okay. Dvorak himself. Changing the keyboard format is like proposing to reverse the Ten Commandments and the Golden Rule, discard every moral principle, and ridicule motherhood. Well, yeah. there we have Dr. Dvorak. Yeah. He wasn't bitter <laughs> <Sorry>. at all. <laughs> no, no, clearly not. He couldn't just leave it at, like, reversing the Ten Commandments. He had to throw in the other three things as well, oh. just because. There we go. Did he do anything else? I feel like he must have done something else. Not that I I'm... think. Did we make a video about him doing some stuff? I don't, I'm this... sure maybe biographics or something. I've not, I've not looked into his full biography. Speaking of biographics, that's another channel. Go check it out. That's, yeah. a, that's a plug. I yeah. was thinking that we should do more plugs for the other stuff that we both do <laughs> yeah. in these podcasts because we're at quite universally terrible at that. Yeah. Uh, are we moving on to the mouse? Is this this episode where we're going to hit both yeah, of these? we're going to hit them both. Let's do it. Yeah, so now moving on to computer mice. How did this come about? Mm -hmm. You'll often hear that it's Doug Engelbart. Is, is the, he's the inventor of the mouse, but this is not... It's kind of accurate, but not quite, of course, is all this... Any invention you always, you know, there's the person who gets credit for it, and then there's all the people who made something really similar beforehand that, you know, wasn't the path for the thing to become popular. Uh, and so they, they don't really get credit, even though they came up with, you know... Are you going to say thing? the amazing phrase you put in here? Because you say, you write in the notes, nothing happens in a vacuum. And I thought this is an amazing callback <laughs> to our episode about space and what happens to people if they're put in a vacuum. Yeah. <laughs> Go back and listen to our yeah, previous yeah. episode about <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah, it's a, that, that is true. That's a good one. I, I always find that one quite fascinating because it's quite the opposite of what you see on movies and stuff. So... Teaser. It's still not listen. good though. Um, it's not, you know, it's not like it's not the opposite. No. It's not the exact opposite. It'd be like you put in a vacuum and you become awesome. It's yeah. not. It's not that. Yeah. But sur uh, surprisingly survivable mm. for a long time, wasn't it? Like ninety seconds or something. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Wow. And oh, yeah. possibly even longer, a little longer. Some the chimpanzees <laughs> lasted longer. Um, but yeah, yeah, it was not a good time for the chimpanzees. They pushed their limits and they died. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And dogs. There were dogs as well, right? Yeah, there were dogs. Uh, they they were yeah. killing dogs. <laughs> no, not good. Science. Um, yeah. <laughs> but if we go back further, mm -hmm. we can find there was a British engineer. And unfortunately for him, this Professor Ralph Benjamin, his work was classified because it was, you know, made for the military. So he got no credit for his mouse that he made in the 1940s, which was basically, if you, you know, these trackball mice, have you used? these where is there the one like you the spin ball. with your fingers yourself yeah that the ball is on the top instead of on I the feel bottom like I, you, you know. use them when you go to a museum that hasn't been updated in a really yeah. long time <laughs> yeah so this is kind of what he invented but this is i mean functionally exactly the same as a normal mouse it's just upside down kind of mm -hmm. and you know the ball is made not to roll on a table but your hand uh so this was otherwise what he made in the in the mid-1940s for the royal navy scientific service Ooh. and uh britain britain representing here yeah say. totally yeah. <laughs> And the uh, the comprehensive display system was the was the project he was working on for the Royal Navy yeah. Navy, and it was just to to just the the system was basically designed to uh, look at monitoring aircraft and you know their trajectory and stuff, 
but they needed a good way. So they were using a joystick to sort of sort of manipulate a cursor. And he oh, just so joystick just, predates mouse. Yes. Yes, huh, they did. And they also that. had something, they had a light pin, which I'm not even sure how the light pin exactly worked. I assume you just pointed it at something on the screen and then it picked it up or something. Or maybe actually, I think the light pin might have been on the table. Like you had some sort of a thing on the table and you went and pointed around. But I could be completely wrong. I've never, never actually seen one used. It sounds super but, futuristic. Yeah. It sounds, yeah, it sounds awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, you, have you tried the, the new Apple light, I, I light pen? <laughs> yeah, that's probably a thing at some point. But, uh, well, but yeah, they, so they this... call it the I light pencil, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's good. And uh, they charge you $200 so... for it because, you know, yeah, at least because <laughs> they and can. Then... Yeah. Uh, so the joystick he thought was, you know, ineffective for to manipulating a cursor on a mm-hmm. screen. So instead, he came up with the rollerball, is what he called it. And it was, yeah, it was just a trackball, basically. It worked. It had the two X, Y axis, you know, wheels inside and then a ball, a ball sitting on top. And so these were wheels were rubber coated and she just kind of manipulated around. It's exactly how the mechanical mice worked, you know, before we had the, the laser and optical, you know, all those, sure. you know, fancy mice. Uh, so this is exactly how it worked, except for, you know, you used your hand on top instead of inverting it, like I said. <laughs> so, yeah, he got no credit for this, of course, because it was all classified, unfortunately, for him. And so now we're moving over to Canada, where someone invented basically the exact same thing, only they used four wheels inside the trackball. And they, this was, this was, this, uh, was done on behalf of the Canadian Defense Research Board uh, by a company, Ferranti Canada, <laughs> yeah. in 1952. And they, the, the, I like the little quote they had from them. They were like, we, we did this basically on zero dollar budget. They, they had to be basically free to make this thing. So they went down and they literally bought like a little, like a bowling ball type thing, uh, a five pin bowling ball to, to use as the, as the ball. And then yeah. they used four, four wheels basically instead of the two that they didn't know someone else had invented already because that was also classified. And so, yeah, so they, they just developed this thing. It worked exactly like Benjamin's device. Otherwise, and we have a picture of it that I'll put up. On it's the, pretty um, cool looking. It's like got a bowling ball in the middle. <laughs> yeah, totally. And it worked great and also was classified. So <laughs> nobody nobody got heard of that one. I either. also feel this feels like counterintuitive. Like it was made for the Canadian Defense Research Board. And when I think about like defense research boards, I think like we're going to invent a mouse. What's the budget? A billion dollars. Yeah. It's like, well, it was the company that they were hiring. So who knows the higher ups in the company? But like, we're going to take all the money as profit. <laughs> no, you have to make up. Yeah. You have to make up something that's basically free to make. They had a billion dollars, um, but we spent it on boots. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Could have been. Who knows? Uh, but yeah, so this this uh, this all brings us around back to Doug Engelbart mm-hmm. and the, the first mouse that actually, you know, saw the light of day and, and gave us eventually the mouse that we, you know, the mouse that everyone is used to using. So his mouse, interestingly, was a little bit different. And there, these trackball mices were in some ways a lot more similar to the mechanical mice, like I said, because his mouse, Ingobert's, didn't actually have a ball. It just had the little wheels, the little X, Y wheels. But you did at least, you used it on the table, you know, and so, but obviously this isn't ideal because as you're moving it along the table, at like an angle or something, one of the one of the little wheels is going to be dragging a little bit. It's not going to be super, you know. It's it's not ideal. The ball the ball version is way better. Um, but at this point, that's what they came up with. The uh, Doug Engelbart and then uh, actually an engineer named Bill English actually implemented the hardware for it. So it was just Engelbart's idea. It was actually really Bill English that came up with the design. Um, mm-hmm. Actual, or I should say, implemented the design the of the thing. And this this worked. This worked. You know, okay. And uh, so initially they did have the wheel 
you know, or the 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 wire coming out the back, which is why he, he couldn't remember who first gave it the nickname the mouse, but that was kind of why it was called a mouse because it looked like it had a little tail and uh, it was just little. Okay. I'll I'll put the picture up as well of this first device, just like a little box looking thing for is people that the who want to look. The, box thing. Yeah, it's just a little wooden box has a little button on it. Uh, quite basic, and there's a yeah little tail coming out the back. They someone called it a mouse. He couldn't remember who first. It's really uh, nice looking. Like yeah. It looks quite, it's not very ergonomic, but you know. No, not as, it's just basically a, a cube, oh. <laughs> like a or yeah. like a very cube-like yeah. rectangle. But I mean, the wood, yeah. it looks like one nice piece of wood. It looks very nicely polished. Yeah, and they polished, rounded, like rounded the edges yeah. so it won't, won't hurt your hands or whatever. So that works. Um, so yeah, they he thought up the device in 1961 and then the prototype was created in 1964 and then, yeah, in 1966, both Engelbart and English, they approached NASA and just asked, they wanted to do a study. They needed funding for a study to look at the various controllers that were out there and see what was the most uh, intuitive and efficient to, um, you know, put their mouse up against, mm-hmm. you know, the, the light pen and stuff like that that was around, joystick and things like this. And so they looked at it and, and this is exactly what they found. So as Engelbart notes... We set up our experiments and the mouse won in every category, even though it had never been used before by the test subjects. It was faster and with it, people made fewer mistakes. Five or six of us were involved in these tests, but no one can remember who started calling it a mouse. I'm surprised the name stuck. Yeah, and so they, they obviously did uh, move the wire to the top because they had problems with people getting there. You know, the, the cord tangled all the time when it was on the bottom, so they oh, yeah, made it would, come out the top. That would be so, frustrating. Yeah. Yeah, so that that was a, a better design. So they they did that, and this this brings us back to the as mentioned the uh, mother of all demos, which was at the Fall Joint Computer Conference in San Francisco on December 9th, nineteen sixty eight. This is this, amazing. Nineteen sixty eight. This is incredible. Sixty eight. Yeah. Like so they have moon landing. To, well, that's bad because yeah. then it's like, well, we were landing on the moon <laughs> at the same time. That's not a good example. I want to say like, but, uh. The what bad thing, 1968? Uh, yeah. Cold War? Again, that was the kind pet, of like... The Pet Rock, maybe? Oh. Uh, was that 1980s? I feel that was I 1980s. Remember. I remember seeing some like then. color stuff or TV. Was color TV in the... No, they were black and white in the 1960s. Mostly. Uh, I think it was the transition. Okay. okay. Happened around then. That's right. Because I remember in Mad Men, they were talking about how, you know, there was they got a color TV and I said, ooh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Fancy. But, the point was computers sucked and so yeah generally this, everything was bad <laughs> and you didn't have you know these personal computers you had these giant mainframe computers that would like heat a whole you know university you know building uh <laughs> and, and stuff so this and just no power whatsoever and this at this point and this time with this networking capability which wasn't much at the time obviously you wouldn't have stuff networked as, uh, that much uh like we think of it today and so this they, in one system, they go up there in this conference and in front of, uh, it was, I think, uh, yeah, over a thousand computer engineers. They're demoing what they've come up with. And it's not just the mouse, the system that this group came up with. So I'm just going to, do you want to read the, the things on this? Sure, why not? I'll do it. Hypertext, video con. Hypertext is where you have like a link through a yes, piece of... correct. Where you can like link and then it takes you to another document, which is just kind of the, the whole idea. Hypertext, video conferencing via a high-speed modem. So like Skype, basically, in 1968. Yeah. Uh, Probably share- a better version of it because Skype crashes <laughs> yeah. every two seconds. Yep, that's right. They had the better version of Skype, 1968. <laughs> Shared screens via a network where control could be passed back and forth. So essentially like remote desktop, right? Yeah, yeah. 
a form of windowed computing. I think we all know what that is. That, yeah, but, you know, 1968, again, a form of windowed computing, 1968. I feel like with th- Windows 3.0 is kind of the first Windows I really remember using. Mm-hmm. And this had Windows, because well, obviously it did. It's called, wow, that's why it's called Windows. <laughs> yeah. I'm just putting that all together. <laughs> Um, okay, good. <laughs> Light bulb. Yeah. Uh, so that's uh, that's uh, that's ahead of its time. Word processing, real time digital text editing with multiple people able to edit files at the same time. And let's also go back to that word processing, which doesn't sound impressive until you consider like word. Why would you need a word processor on a? No one's using a mainframe for like something like this, right? Like yeah. we're just typing away. You know, that's expensive computing time to just, you know, a word processor type up a document. I mean, like, it wasn't like no one was using, but it was like, this was quite a revolutionary idea. And then, of course, yeah, the one, the even more revolutionary idea over there with the... Real-time text editing with multiple people able to edit files at the same time. I feel that they didn't get this sorted out until Google Drive got this together. Yeah, with revision control as well, which is sort of like a Wikipedia type idea, networked, you know, network. It wasn't, it was like multiple on a network could then edit like this, you know, so across... Yeah, yeah. I just and remember then, uh, having yeah. my mind blown by this. Like it, before yeah. Google Drive, where you could edit multiple files, two people could edit this file at the same time on Google. It had a different name. It was amazing, and I remember using this at the same time, being like, "Oh, I'm typing at the same time. Someone else in another <laughs> computer somewhere else is." Yeah, and this was 1968. Yeah, and this is yeah, and they had uh, various for- other forms of network collaboration, and this was so so. Uh, oh, I should go back also. They, they, even though you didn't have personal computers, you know, you didn't have PCs back then, but they yeah. were using it. A lot of the stuff they were demoing was for the future where they saw where people would have com- personal computers. Right. And so like they had, for instance, grocery lists. So like his wife could edit the grocery list from home. Uh, and then he could then, you know, go and pick up the groceries from the store based on these edits. And he could add things to the list as well. And this was kind of his like little idea of when he's driving home or whatever. Personal supercomputer? <laughs> yeah, <but laughs> he was this, like, this, oh, I am in the store. I do need book. Let me cross that off. I assume he was thinking to, <laughs> to print it out. I've actually watched this demo. You can go and watch the demo, but it has been like a year or two since I watched. Oh. So you can go on YouTube and watch this, this demo. And it's really cool. Uh, so I can't remember uh, exactly. I, I assume he was thinking printing printing sure. it off and then doing it that way but um i can't remember exactly but anyone can go i'll link to it in the in the description there because it, it was really cool to watch um yeah and this this all this was so revolutionary that he actually when when the presentation a lot of people were like well he's a crackpot and then he actually got chastised uh chastised for this because uh so the uh, quite a famous computer scientist andres van dam mm-hmm. uh, he he actually berated he went up to him after the thing and said it's irresponsible and unethical for you to show something you put together for a demo and pretend it actually works! Exclamation yeah. point. <laughs> yeah, and then Ingvar, you know, he came back. No, I told him, it's real. He just wouldn't believe it until he got to SRI and saw it for himself. Yeah, and this is a thing at Tech Stuff all the time. People do like a demo of some really cool thing that only works in the demo. You know, that actually happens all the time. So this is what a lot of people just assumed they were doing because there was so much that was quite revolutionary about this system they had developed. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I yeah. love watching the tech demos on on YouTube. Do you know the it, it's like one that does graphics that it's called like Sigurograph or something? Have you seen these? Hmm, no, I haven't seen that one. I'll send you a link after this. Or I, it might not be Sigurograph, but if you Google Sigurograph tech demo, I'm sure you'll see hmm. it. And it's just like uh, what it's like experimental or like d- demos of computer graphics and what they'll look like. 
And it's just crazy. It's some of the stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm sure now I remember watching them a few years ago, being like, oh, wow, the physics are crazy. And now it's like, yeah, now we have that in Grand Theft Auto. But yeah. it's uh, yeah. amazing to see what you'll have in a couple of years, just at the consumer yeah. level. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyway. Yeah, and so you you think from this demo that oh, it revolutionized everything, right? You have all these, you know, over a thousand, you know, top computer engineers looking at this, and then they all went back to their companies and made cool stuff. But that's not quite, you know, I mean, to some extent, Steve Jobs happen. was there. He'd be like, yeah. cool. <laughs> yeah, this is, we'll, we'll get to Steve Jobs in a little bit because he does play a role in this. Ah. So Ingebart's part in this, uh, as well as English, is largely forgotten, you know, over, over the subsequent years. And, you know, this, the mouse kind of uh, went into obscurity for a time. So this brings us back to Bill English, who is now working at Xerox, right? So he's there and he's, at a certain point, he improved upon his design to actually use a wheel you know, inside, so the, so the little XY, or I should say a ball, ball. inside, so the XY, yeah. yeah, aren't, aren't scraping across, and so this, this works quite well, and it's just the, the way we all did it until, like, you know, the late 1990s or so, early 2000s, when everyone transitioned I remember to this, optical mice. I remember this transition. Yeah. I was at school. It was, <laughs> so was I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you remember, I don't know, maybe this is just me, but those mice with those hard little rubber balls inside. <laughs> yeah, this is, it's a bad time, like, because kids, we just take those out and throw them at each other. <laughs> and yeah. then they glued them shut. <laughs> and then yeah. they'd get all jammed up with glue and like bits because you couldn't clean them. Yeah, and they were yeah, they, they would always get the stuff. This was this was the great thing. And so Counter Strike came out, I don't know, right when I was like a freshman and uh, around that time. And the uh, this was the great thing is because I bought like a laser mouse uh. and everyone else was still using the bald mask and so i was just like headshot 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 and, and everyone was like you're cheating and it was like no laser mouse it's awesome upgrade people <laughs> yeah it's so superior for you know that fine point aiming and whatnot so it was great but yeah so so this this you know xerox uh, going back to that and and discussing steve jobs oh before I, before I get into the, the Xerox thing, I should mention that so Ingebart and English, they, they worked for Stanford Research Institute and they came up with a lot of this stuff, including the mouse. And so unfortunately, not only did they not really get credit for the mouse, you know, invention for quite some time, uh, but they also didn't really earn any money from it other than their salary from Stanford because Stanford owned the patent and Stanford did profit uh, from Apple, um, for instance, paid them $40,000 or $130,000 a day to use the mouse. Um, and then, of course, the mouse, uh, the patent expired in 1984. So that was that right when, right when this is, uh, so we have Steve Jobs coming on the scene and he decides to give Apple some share or um, Xerox some shares of Apple shares mm -hmm. in 1979. If he can go tour Xerox Palo Alto Research Center uh, Park and um, just go look and see what they're working on. And so they agreed. And this is where he came out. He came across uh, Bill English, who is now working there and his mechanical mouse with the ball and everything. And Jobs saw this thing and was just, uh, he was just uh, blown away by it. And uh, according to the engineer who demonstrated the mouse to Jobs, it was a guy by the name of Larry Tesler, Jobs said, Jobs was very excited. Then when he began seeing the things I could do on screen, he watched for about a minute and started jumping around the room shouting, why aren't you doing anything with this? This is the greatest thing. This is revolutionary. Yeah. And it turns out this is the funny part. So a lot of people think they weren't doing anything, but it turns out they were doing something with this. Just nobody noticed. Uh, so the Xerox, <laughs> Xerox had their um, their Alto that had the that the you know they'd been selling this since 1973 with the, with the trackball mouse, and uh, and later they did it also with the Xerox 8010 system, and that was released in 1981. Mm -hmm. 
And so they were doing something with the mouse and it just was like nobody noticed. And this, this is a thing like Xerox, um, well, as actually Jobs himself would note. If Xerox had known what it had and had taken advantage of its real opportunities, it could have been as big as IBM plus Microsoft plus Xerox combined and the largest high technology computer company in the world. Yeah, so they, I mean, they had these windowed systems and stuff that he was, you know, this was uh, kind of another thing he saw there and the mouse and everything. They had it all right there in the research center, so much of what would become revolutionary. And they just did nothing with it, really, or at least didn't market it well enough for anyone to notice. And uh, so, yeah, this left let others like Jobs and I feel and like Bill I need Gates to go center. tour around some research facilities. Yeah, like, there's always hey, cool sure, stuff. Yeah, come look at all of our secret stuff or that stuff that should yeah. be secret that we're working on. Yeah. I think that works better when you're like a billionaire. Was he a billionaire at can, this point? Oh, 70 no, uh, no, no, he would not have been because that was Pixar was when he became a big billionaire was when he, um, That's right. uh, the uh, Toy Story, when that, mm-hmm. that you know, blew up. Uh, so that, that after he screwed all his employees out of their shares of that, but whatever. Wait, wasn't that the second time he became a billionaire? Didn't he do it from... I think that was the first time. Okay. Because he... He did that because he had to, that the uh, Pixar kind of went bankrupt a little bit. And so he took all the shares, but then like almost immediately, very quickly after, I should say. Uh, so he just canceled that company, made a new company, but now he owned everything. And then, <laughs> yeah. the, then Toy Story comes out. And then that was, <laughs> wasn't it also um, called Pixar. I think so. He didn't even, uh, didn't but, even change the name. Yeah, it was. Uh, but yeah, that worked out for him. I mean, to be fair, he was dumping a lot of money into that company and it was just going downhill fast and he just continued yeah. to pump money into it. So you know, he does have he that felt going. this was fair. Yeah. Uh, and, you know. Maybe it wasn't. But, maybe, maybe it was. Maybe it was. Yeah. But yeah, so his jobs then goes back to his, his, his company, <laughs> Apple, and he says, he's like, he says, all right, now. <laughs> yeah, he was. He was like, all right, the next, the next iteration of this, this PC we're making, it has to be now. We're going to make it a Windows-based system, but, you know, just kind of modeling after what he saw on Xerox. And it also has to have to have a mouse. And then, so yeah, so the Dean Hovey, who was working there, he, uh, uh, he said Jobs explained to him later that week. The Xerox mouse is a mouse that costs $300 to build and it breaks within two weeks. Here's your design spec. Our mouse needs to be manufacturable for less than 15 bucks, which is about $50 today. It needs to not fail for a couple of years. And I want to be able to use it on Formica and my blue jeans. What's Formica? It's like a type of surface, like a kitchen surface or something? Uh, yes. Oh. Laminate countertops. Boom, some sort of really? a plastic. Yeah. Awesome. yeah. That was a good, solid guess. Yeah. Although, I th- is it for, for Micah? I think I feel, I feel like I've heard people I say for Micah. I because I was like, I had no idea if I'm saying that right. Yeah. So. I, I could be completely saying that wrong as well. I don't really know. But uh, so then, then Hovi then explained. Uh, he said, from that meeting, I went to Walgreens and I wandered around and bought all the underarm deodorants that I could find because they had that ball in them. I bought a butter dish for the body of the mouse. That was the beginnings of the Apple mouse. Yeah, and so then you also might be wondering why. So the the original mouse, you know, these these original ones had like three buttons because this was what Ingobert and they determined was the ideal number of of buttons on the mouse mm-hmm. to to be useful and and for what different things you could do. And so, but the one button, so Hovi stated of this. There were disputes around the number of buttons. Three buttons, two buttons, one button mouse. The mouse at Xerox had three buttons, but we came around to the fact that learning to use a mouse is a feat in and of itself, and to make it as simple as possible with just one button was pretty important. Yeah. yeah so this, they ended up debuting it with the Apple Lisa system, uh, which was uh, not you know super well known, I don't think, today. Uh, but yeah, this was named after Jobs' daughter, who he 
denied was his daughter for quite some time. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. And then even though he was naming, you know, his system after her and his, their, her, her and her mother were living in poverty, whatever. <laughs> yep. I remember this from, uh, Walter Isaacson's yeah. book. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, anyways, so yeah, the, the first one used a steel ball, which, which turned out to be not as good as that would be terrible. Later. For school. Yeah, just well, and yeah, on like a smooth surface, it wasn't ideal. You know, oh, I, I meant throwing at each other. <laughs> oh, yeah, that would be even worse. <laughs> that would be even worse. But yeah, the uh, so they they switched it to rubber ball, obviously, on the Apple Macintosh that was released in nineteen eighty four. And yeah, so this this ended up being how it all you know became. And, by the way, for our younger listeners, this was not like a gentle rubber ball that you'd get from one of those vending machines. This no. thing was like it was there was metal in there. Yeah. It was just wrapped yeah, was, in rubber. It had some good mass because it had to. If it didn't, then it wouldn't, you know, it would just slide across the surface. It needed some weight to it to, yeah. to make it all work good. It, would, it um, hurt if you got hit by one of these. Like, <laughs> yeah. Really, really hurts. And so this, this, is, this gave us the mouse. And then everyone, of course, adopted that and the Windows system and all that came. And yeah, then we had uh, everyone keep saying the mouse is going away because we have all the touch interfaces and everything. And it's true to some extent, but the mouse is still going strong for a lot of uses. It's, people haven't figured a good way to replace it yet. Mouse is pretty ultra precise. Like, yeah, I like yeah, that. It, where your where your finger is not, and also pens don't, you know, work. So you've you got know, one right. of those Microsoft Surface Touch. To yes, things. they do the Surface Book Two. Yep. Yeah, when you're using that and you want to like sit down and do some work that requires finer like touching, mm -hmm. like you know, mm -hmm. I, I always think like Premiere. The play button in Premiere is tiny. Mm -hmm. Like if you, yeah. you know, use the space bar mostly, but you do occasionally yep. use the mouse. Do you use do you switch to a mouse or are you touching the screen on that thing? No, the I usually use it in the laptop mode, which is what it's great. Uh, but it also then you can just pop off the screen and then you can use you know your fingers and you can put it in tablet mode or you can also use the um, the pen obviously for drawing and things like that for fi for ultra fine uh, stuff. So yeah, it's just kind of versatile both ways. But when you're in laptop mode, I, I shouldn't say mouse. I should say trackpad. You know the the yeah. You're using the trackpad. I usually do because I'm quite proficient at it. I know some people don't like to just have, some people like to just have the mouse, but the trackpad works. I you know, you can get pretty good at it. Trackpad's solid. Yeah. Like yeah. I have no, I have trackpad at work and then on my laptop, uh, trackpad on the laptop and then mice at work. Trackpad's great. Got no issues with trackpad. Yeah. And the swiping yeah. and the scrolling and on Mac yeah. at least you do, I'm sure you have the multi-touch gestures or whatever so you can like minority report stuff to the side. Like yeah, whoosh, whoosh. it's like a it's like a nice hybrid between the mouse and the and the touch interface. Cool. Basically, uh, was that is that the mouse? That's the that's the end of the story of the mouse and the poor British guy who gets no credit, oh. and I can't even remember his name now. It poor was guy. he was a professor, wasn't he, or was that Dvorak? Oh, see, look at this. He's already obscure. It wasn't Bill English. He has a very easy to remember name. Wait for Find it. Find him. Give him credit. He worked for the Royal Navy. Professor Ralph Benjamin. I knew he was a professor. Yes, he was okay. he was the first, truth truthfully, but yeah, his his invention was top secret. And in this episode, we salute you, Professor Benjamin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, should we do a bit of feedback and discussion and then wrap it up? A little special announcement after. Oh, we do have a special announcement. That's right. That's right. How exciting. For yeah. Well, we'll see where that goes. Uh someone emailed in and i always feel with email i don't mention people's names but if you wrote this email you'll know who they are i just thought this was quite fun because we've talked about mm -hmm. it previously someone says uh brain food is my first favorite and only podcast uh and i use y'all's video to fall asleep every night 
And then I know we've discussed this before about whether it's a good thing or not. And the person specifically says, in a good way, I watch yeah. them while awake too. <laughs> like, I like this very specific follow-up that people give us because they know like <laughs> things we've brought up before. Uh, and then this bit I loved. You and David are absolute kings, all caps, and I would defend you both with my life if there was an apocalypse. <laughs> I'm like, that's a very nice compliment and very specific. That is. That is quite nice. Then they say, have a blessed day and please consider doing eight plus hour podcasts with oh, Davin, yes. even though you'll explain why you wouldn't. Yes. Oh, no. <laughs> this one's quite long. So, I mean, nowhere near yeah, eight hours, one, but. The one hour ones take enough time. <laughs> yes, they, yes, they do. Shall we do some, I, I didn't really have any other follow up. Uh, should I have, yeah. I don't think we released the previous episode when we're recording this one because we're pushing yeah, them quite yeah. close together right now, just because we're mm-hmm. busy. I'm going to hit some reviews and then do an announcement and then wrap up. How's that sound? Yeah, sounds good. Uh, username, oh, good Lord, FBDHDHX. That's nothing. <laughs> I don't think, is it something? No. Uh, this show is so good. I will go back and re-listen to, I've got to stop making fun of the people who give us great reviews. I know <laughs> I've said this in like eight episodes, but I will. I will learn how to do it. Uh, this show is so good, I will go back and re-listen to older episodes. Each listen contains a new fact I didn't hear before, and the bonus facts are the best. I work them into my job, so every day my colleagues get a message with a bonus fact from your show. It's a great conversation starter and uh, a way for you to look smarter in front of all your friends. I realize we might have a marketing problem. Do you know what our marketing problem is? No. So people love our show. But they also love appearing smart in front of their friends. Oh, yeah. So they'll, they'll never tell. They'll never tell. They'll be like, where did you read that? Scientific American. Well, this is, this is actually <laughs> the problem. If you look at like, um, so as we've discussed before, you know, whatever, 85% of the audience is um, male. And yeah. men don't share stuff that they like. That's like true. if you really love, so you just don't tell anyone. And the, but whereas like women, if they find something they love, they're just like, yeah, I go to their friends and they tell them all about it. And so you see this like, the, you know, things rapidly uh, you know, become popular there, but the men are just like, yeah. And they just, like you say, just say the fact where they got it or, you know. Ah, yeah. We, we're doing okay. We're growing, which is good. Yeah. I like that. Uh, Thanos47 says, love the podcast, five stars. Been listening to your podcast for a while now, and I love the format and the banter between you guys. Uh, I also really like the love. I really like the love. Cool. How much you and David like star trek and the fun bits of trivia you add into the podcast keep up the great podcast sorry to disappoint you on the data's brain facts today because that was a good star yeah. trek star it was trek but one. unfortunately it was from several years ago when i actually looked up the data and then we didn't have um a lot of time before recording to me to fix it and i couldn't find any data on how much people download from the internet every day or i should say any reputable data uh, in the short time i had so i had to swap out to a different quick fact Someday, maybe we'll come back to it. But we'll have more Star Trek facts in the future. Finally, last one I'm just going to do. Love these guys. Five stars by Amy176. Excellent. Just excellent. Oh, and then an update. I didn't know you could update reviews. Hey, (laughs) now we get to... (laughs) Hey, one star review who says you hate us. (laughs) Do you want to update that? (laughs) No, probably not. I like the new format and the show has been following... uh, The show has been following clear segments, short facts, follow-ups, the main content and reviews. That's the, they still come together cohesively in fun and fascinating ways. I'm glad about that because we changed this show format many times. So mm-hmm. I think we're finally evolving towards or we're starting to evolve towards a format that people are starting to dig. 
I have also been enjoying the multi-episode themes. That's also a relatively new thing, so that's good. Especially the macabre parts. I'm assuming Amy's a girl. Yeah. yeah. Is, the, is the, Or I should say a woman rather than a girl. Yeah. Um, dude. Yeah. Macabre and women, which we talked about in the previous episode. We just got to do more of that. I think. Wow. Get the, get the ratio better. Love it. Uh, to the yeah. podcast team, keep up the excellent work. To potential listeners, definitely give this one a try. You won't be disappointed. That's cool. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Amy, Thanos, and blah, blah, blah. you left great reviews. <laughs> that was no. the first guy. FBHDH8. So, I can't even no. read it. Uh, uh, so this last bit, I do want to preface this by don't get any ideas, everyone. This was a one thing that we thought was really nice, but please don't send in requests for this every week. Because, because like, unless you're a rocket scientist also, because this, this person is a rocket scientist. It's super specific, love, yeah. We love our rocket scientists here. Uh, so, uh, how this is, when we were doing the space series, we had, uh, our, our aerospace engineer, our rocket scientist engine, uh, email in, and we just thought it'd be fun to pass on a message that he has to one Elizabeth, do you think that's Petri? Elizabeth Petri? Petri. Petri. Elizabeth Petri. Petri. Thank you. Oh, look, it's written right there phonetically for me. That's handy. <laughs> <laughs> it's just on the next slide, so I couldn't see it. Yeah. Uh, he, as he says, uh, your hopeless nerd of a rocket scientist boyfriend, Rob. Okay. So over to Rob. There we go. Lizzie, you're the kindest, most intelligent, most beautiful person in the world. This big nerd has come a long way from that first date at the room. And I want to continue loving, learning from, and growing with you. I know my voice isn't as suave as Simon Whistler's, but I wanted to ask you from the bottom of my heart, Elizabeth Petrie, will you marry me? All right, so there you go. Uh, that's not something we're going to be doing every week. Please don't write in, but I thought it would be fun specifically to do this for Rob. So there you go. I hope that was good. And if you're like an astronaut or something and you want to, you know, one-up Rob, then then we could probably do something. Or a, a rocket scientist brain surgeon, maybe. Oh, brain. yeah. <laughs> Have you seen a that Mitchell and Webb clip? This is one of my A rocket favorite. surgeon? What about the guy who does brain surgery in space? yeah yeah that's that's okay, a that, thing that. <laughs> uh yeah so so feel free to one up rob if you want um are we wrapping it there for today yeah sounds good excellent um we'll see you all next week for another computer themed thing we have no names for this yet so it's yeah. gonna have a name by the time you've heard this there'll be yeah. all of that stuff we'll see you in the mm -hmm. next one and as always thanks for listening check out backblaze just go to backblaze.com forward slash brain food to check that out. Unlimited back backup, truly unlimited backup. And as we super discussed. easy. It takes zero. You just install it and then it just does its thing. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to know anything really. Easy. That's where we're going to end it. See you all next week. Cool. I was really worried because I've got a lot of xylophone talk planned for later in this episode.